begin a new sermon series for the next month, and so I want you to take your Bible and find Psalm 96. The series is called Finish the Mission, and it is not a coincidence that we're talking about missions at the end of the year when we collect our world missions offering, and we're going to have some more videos over the next few weeks to show you, highlighting some of our missionaries and some of the things that they do and some of the places that they serve, and talking about the importance of you and I giving. Sometimes we think that the folks who go are the ones who make a true sacrifice for missions, but people can only go if somebody has already given. And just like those who go make a sacrifice, those who stay and give also are called to make a sacrifice. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about. What is the mission that God has given us and what needs to happen for that mission to be finished? If you think about it, we've had a lot of time to get the job done. We've had 2,000 years to finish the very simple but very difficult mission of making disciples of all of the nations. When I think about finishing the mission, I remember being on a mission trip in Tanzania and the mission, missionary, Mike Burroughs, took us out to the border between Tanzania and Kenya. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And we drove and we drove and we drove and there's nothing and there's nothing. It's just dirt, dirt, dirt. We drive out in the middle of nowhere and we're on the border. And it's kind of funny because the border, you realize there's no fence there. But they have a little village on the border and at the little village there's a gate right there. You can go around the village and just cross over but there's a gate in the village and we're in the village. And we're going to eat in this little village. Just about 100 people live in this little community right there on the border. And we go in, and we walk through these houses, back, kind of back down this alley. We go into this restaurant in the middle of nowhere, and they had two things that I did not expect to see. They had cold Coca-Cola, and they had MTV on, on the TV. <laughs> middle of nowhere. I'm looking around. There's no power lines. There's no cables coming in. There's nothing. Coke has made it there to the ends of the earth. MTV has made it. They had Snoop Dogg rapping when we sat down to eat. I'll never forget it. Snoop Dogg's there. We're not there. We need to finish the mission. And so we're going to spend a month thinking about what needs to happen for the mission, for the job to be completed. And our passage this morning is an Old Testament passage. We're going to look at a couple of Old Testament passages, a couple of New Testament passages in this series we're going to look at Psalm 96. Here's the big idea before we read from the scriptures. We will finish the mission when we understand that God is the judge of all peoples. If the mission is going to be completed, there's some things that we need to do. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But there's a few things that we just need to understand in our minds. Part of the problem in the fact that we've had 2,000 years to finish the mission and it's not finished is that we really don't understand the foundational biblical truths that undergird our mission. And this is one that you're going to have to get down deep in your bones. God is the judge of all peoples. And so I want you to look with me in the scriptures, Psalm 96, and we're going to read from verse 1 all the way to the end. The word of God says this, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning and over the next few weeks, we pray that you would give us a clear picture of the mission that you have entrusted to us what you expect of us, what needs to happen, what we need to understand, what we need to believe. Father, we pray that you would use us as individuals, as families, as a church family here at Emmanuel, that you would use us to take your name and the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And we pray this morning that you would help us to understand fully and clearly what it means that you will judge all of the peoples, all of the nations, all of the families on this earth. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So on Sunday mornings, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke is narrative. It's a story, and when you study something like that, you just sort of pick a passage and you work verse by verse, and you try to understand the flow of the story and what happened before it and what happened after it and how the the story progresses. The book of Psalms is different because it's not a story, it's poetry. It's a song book. And so when you read through Psalms and you study through Psalms, you don't study it as if it's a narrative, as if it's some story and you're moving from uh, part of the story, part of the beginning, and then you have some conflict and then you have some resolution. It's not that kind of study. It's like you're studying song lyrics. It's like you get online and you look up the lyrics to your favorite song and you're reading those and you study those. And instead of moving from verse 1 all the way to 13 in order, progressing, what you do is you look for repeated themes. You look for words or ideas that come up over and over and over again. And so we're going to do that this morning and we're going to think about what does it mean For us to understand that God is the judge of all the peoples. This is the first thing you need to get. All nations are called to give God the glory he rightly deserves. All of the nations. Called to give God the glory that he rightly deserves. Look at these terms with me in Psalm 96. Look at verse 1. He talks about the earth. Verse 3 the nations. Verse 5, peoples. Verse 7, families. Verse 9, the earth. Verse 10, the nations. Verse 10, the peoples. Verse 13, the earth. Verse 13, the world. Verse 13, the peoples. All of those words in those verses, talking about something that theologians and people who, who study missions call 
a people group. Here's a definition of a people group. It's the largest group within which the gospel can spread without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. Think about that. Use your brain. The largest group of people within which the gospel can spread without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. You understand we have multiple people groups in Odessa, Texas, right? We are all Odessans, but there are multiple people groups. And some of you may have a neighbor who speaks a language different than you. They're part of a different people group. There's a barrier of understanding between you and them. Even if you wanted to go share the gospel with them, you couldn't do it because you don't speak the same language that they do. And so we're reading about nations, when we're reading about peoples, we're not talking about geopolitical countries, we're talking about people groups. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. This is the country of Nigeria. It's in Western Africa. It's the most populous country in Africa. Uh, it is the seventh most populous country in the world. 186 million people live in Nigeria, one of the fastest growing countries on earth. Everyone who lives in that white box with the black line around it is a Nigerian. They live in Nigeria. That's pretty simple. But if you looked at that same map and said, we realize that God doesn't see our lines, right? We put those lines there on the map, and you understand if you go there, they're not there. Most places. Some places have fences or walls, but no black lines there. If you looked at this same part of the world, not as a country of Nigeria, but as different people groups, it looks like this. Every one of those lines on that country is a barrier of understanding or culture or language or acceptance. And if we send you as a missionary to Nigeria, guess what? You can't share the gospel easily, plainly, clearly, freely with every every person there with all 186 million people. There's barriers. And you're going to bump up against one barrier and say, well, these people don't understand what I'm talking about. These people aren't speaking the same language. These people have a different culture and customs and background. There's barriers. And what the Bible is talking about is that every one of these people groups, all of them, were created to give God glory. So when we say nations, you understand we're not talking about the 196 geopolitical nation states that you learned in geography class. We're talking about people groups, and there's thousands of them, thousands of them. Look at Psalm 96 again. Look at all of these words, commands given to these different people groups. Verse 1, sing. Verse 1, sing. Verse 2, sing. Verse 2, bless. Verse 2, tell. Verse 3, declare. Verse 4, praise. Verse 4, fear. Verse 7, ascribe. Verse 7, again, ascribe. Verse 8, ascribe. Verse 8, bring an offering. Verse 9, worship. Verse 9, tremble. Verse 10, say. Verse 11, be glad. Verse 11, rejoice. Verse 12, exalt. Verse 12, sing. All of those words, commands, given to all of the people groups, and the psalmist is saying, you all are called to give God glory by singing, by talking about it, by ascribing, by praying, by bringing an offering. You are called to give God the glory and the worship and the praise that he deserves. Here's the connection when we talk about people groups 
in this worship. This is on your outline, and this is important. Worship is a strong motivation for missions. It's a strong motivation for missions. In fact, I would say that worship and the idea that all of these peoples are created to worship God is the only motivation strong enough to sustain missions over the long haul and to get us across the finish line. The problem is, a lot of times in church, we try to motivate people towards missions, either going or opening up their wallets and giving. We try to motivate them without using worship as motivation. Sometimes we try to motivate people towards missions using poverty pity. You know what that is? That's when we stand up and we show you the pictures of how poor the people there are and how sorry you should feel for them. You have so much, they have so little, you should feel sorry for them, you should open your wallet, you should give, you should go, you should do something. And we try to motivate people to be involved in missions by guilting them into it. You know what the problem is with that, right? When you guilt somebody into something, they usually do the bare minimum needed to get the guilt off their chest. Nobody's going to make a real sacrifice because you guilted them into it. They're going to say, ah, oh, you're right. I have a lot. They don't have much. We're very blessed. They don't appear to be that blessed. How much could I give that would make me feel better about it? And they do the bare minimum. Another problem is that when you go, for example, if you go with us to Kenya, you get over there and you see people, and guess what? They really don't have much. I'm not trying to guilt you into it. That's just reality, and you see that up front. But you're surprised that they feel less sorry for themselves than you feel for them. We feel really bad for them, and we just beat ourselves up, and we get emotional. And, you know, they don't like being poor. Would they like to live in the United States and have what we have? Probably. But they're not dwelling on it all day long. And you go over there on some hero trip to sort of solve all of this poverty problem. You can't solve it. And they're not feeling bad about it. Sometimes we try to motivate people to missions instead of using worship. We try to use the fear of hell and big numbers. So it could say there's this many thousands of people groups and millions and millions of people and they don't know and they're all going to go to hell and you need to go and we try to sort of scare people into missions into giving and into going there's a couple of problems with that first of all when i start talking about billions of people billions with a b on earth who don't know about jesus your mind cannot comprehend that number you can't you know it's a number, you know it's bigger than a million, you know it's smaller than a trillion, you know it's a lot of people. You can't comprehend a billion people, what a billion people look like. And very closely related to that, it's just a number, it's not a face. It's just a statistic. It's not going to motivate you to anything. It's going to maybe make you think a little bit. It's not going to motivate you to anything. Maybe you put a face with the name. You go and you go with us to Kenya. You go somewhere on a mission trip and you, you say, okay, now these people aren't just numbers. They're a face and I'm looking at them. You know what one of the things you're going to discover is? This is why you can't use the fear of hell to motivate missions in the long term. People who don't love Jesus don't throw welcoming parties for missionaries when they show up. You understand that? 
Like, when we go to Kenya, we have some friends, and they welcome us, and they put us up, and they're believers, and it's great. All the people who don't know Jesus, they're not there waiting on us at the airport. They're not just lining up to hear what we have to say. They're not interested. They're lost. They have other beliefs. They're not looking for Jesus. So you can't motivate missions with feel sorry for them because they're so poor. You can't motivate it with, well, they're, they're all just going to die and go to hell. It just doesn't work in the long term. What you've got to understand and get deep down inside of you is this idea. God is the judge of all the peoples. And all of the peoples, all of the nations, all of these people groups were created to worship Jesus. And then you look at the world and you realize they're not. They don't worship Jesus. You can go online to a website called The Joshua Project. I pulled these, these faces and this information right off of the, the Joshua Project website. You could go see the Sakatran people in Yemen. You have a picture of them? That's one of them. 122,000 Sakatran people. They speak Sakatri. They're 99% Muslim. They don't worship Jesus. You go to India and meet the Gawaria people. There's 72,000 of them. They speak Hindi, and they are 100% Hindu. Nobody in that whole group of people worshiping Jesus, not a single soul. Created to worship Jesus, none of them doing. Zakawa people in Sudan, 141,000 of them, they speak Arabic, 99% Muslim. Zoe people of Brazil, there's 200 of them. That's it. And if you're drawing lines on Brazil, there's a little bitty line around 200 of them. Just 200 people in that people group. Their own language, their own religious beliefs, their own customs, created to worship Jesus, and they don't do it. All of them believe in spirits and animism and things like that. When you look at those people, it's not going to cut it to say, well, I feel sorry for them. They don't have much, and I have so much. I should go be a missionary, or I should give to a missions offering. Nobody's going to make a sacrifice to do that, to give or to go. It's not enough to say, well, they're all going to hell. Because even though I've shown you a picture, it's just a picture. It's not a real person to you. And even if you were to go to them, they're not meeting you at the airport to sign up for whatever you're selling. The only thing that will motivate missions in sacrificial going and in sacrificial giving is the idea you see in Psalm 96. All of these peoples, these four people groups, your people group, all of them in Odessa, all of them in Nigeria, all of them everywhere, created to worship Jesus, commanded to worship God right here, and they're not doing it. Worship motivates our missions. Here's the second thing you need to wrap your mind around. All the nations will stand before the judge. All of them. The Zoe, the ones in Nigeria, the ones across the street from you, they will all stand before the judge. Look how this psalm ends in verse 10. It says, he will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13, it says, he comes to judge the earth. Verse 13, he will judge the world. Over and over, this comes up in the last few verses. He will judge He's the judge. He's coming to judge all of the peoples. 
will stand before the judge. And you know, when you hear this idea that God is the judge, it ought to produce certain emotions inside of you. You understand, our society says you just feel what you feel and you can't help it. Whatever you feel is what you feel and that is what it is. The book of Psalms over and over and over again says you should feel this way and not that way. And when you understand that God is the judge and all the nations are going to stand before him, one of the things you should fear or feel is fear. Look at verse 4. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Look at verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now I'm going to let you in on some high level theology. You ready? This is on your outline. This is really top shelf. I'm not putting the cookies down low. This is really, you're going to have to think. Are you ready? In the Bible, fear and trembling means fear and trembling. That's what it means. You got it? I need to go over that again. Let me spell it out loud. F-E-A-R, fear. Trembling, T-R-E-M-B-L-I-N-G. That's what it means. You remember The Wizard of Oz? How many of you seen The Wizard of Oz? You like this movie? This is a good movie. You remember when they finally get to Oz the very first time and uh, they think they're going to go in to see Oz and then they don't get to go in and then they do get to go in, you remember? And they're walking arm in arm down this long hallway up to Oz. You remember the scarecrow? Somebody remembers him. He's falling down, he's stumbling, he's running out of windows, he's stammering and stuttering. That is fear and trembling. That's what it looks like. You know what we look like more than the scarecrow on the Wizard of Oz? We look like Aladdin in his genie. That's how we treat God. We know he's powerful. Don't get me wrong. We know that he can do things that we can't do. But there's no fear and trembling for most of us. He's just some sort of big, lovable something. And we come to him with all of our requests and our favors. You say, oh, maybe some people do that. We, I don't do that. Think about the things you pray about most. What do you pray about the most? Don't say it out loud. Most of us pray about most things that we want God to do. I need you to do this. I want you to make this person well. I want you to do that. I need you to give me this. Requests like Aladdin in the genie. Only Aladdin understood he only got three. We think we just have an unlimited supply over and over and over again. You know how else you know it? Think about the things that you give thanks for the most. We did that this week. It was Thanksgiving. Maybe at your table you all went around and you said something you're thankful for. We have a tendency in that situation to say, thank you for my stuff. Thank you for my other stuff. Thank you for my stuff in the garage. Thank you for my stuff in the storage building. Thank you for my stuff in the attic. Thank you for my family. Thank you for all the things that I have that I enjoy that you have given me. Psalm 96 says, when you understand that God is the judge, you should be fearful and you should tremble. 
And the best way I can explain that to you is to say that means you should be fearful and tremble. But he's the judge. He's not some genie that exists to do our bidding. He's the judge. And Psalm 96 says all of the peoples, all of the nations, all of the families, all of them will one day stand before the judge. When you start to struggle with this idea of fear and trembling, when you sit here today and you say, fear and trembling, he says it really means fear and trembling. When was the last time I truly feared or trembled? And you maybe think, I have a hard time conjuring that up. I have a hard time doing that. And maybe you would respond and say, yes, but we're secure in Jesus and he died for us. And I get all that. But when Proverbs says it 17 times, fear God, and Psalm says it over and over and over, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. I don't think you just get to go erase that out and say, well, Jesus came. It's different now. He's still the judge. You should still fear. You should still tremble. And when you don't. More than likely, the problem is one of two things. You have forgotten who God is or you have forgotten who you are. And so I'm reminding you who God is. He's the judge. And very quickly, let me remind you who you are. We're not going to look all of these up. We'll just sort of run through them here. Genesis 6, 5. Apart from God's grace, every intention of the thought of your heart is only evil continually. That's you. Psalm 51, 5. Sinful from birth, from the moment of conception. Isaiah 59, 2. Your sins have separated you from God. Jeremiah 17, 9. Your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You can't understand it. Romans 3, 10 to 11. No one seeks God. No one comes to God. No one is looking for God apart from his grace. Romans 3, 23. You know all have sinned and fallen short. Romans 6, 23. The wages, the consequence, the result of your sin is death. Ephesians 2 is an interesting one. It says that left to ourselves, we're spiritually dead and followers of Satan. Most of you probably, if I asked you to share your testimony, would not stand up and say, well, I used to be a devil worshiper. Then I became a Christian. But if you're a Christian, that's your testimony. I used to follow Satan. That's what Ephesians 2 says. You can look it up. James 2.10, for those who think they're not as bad as the rest of us, says, if you break one of the commands, you are a lawbreaker. Don't comfort yourself that, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, or I haven't done this, or I haven't done that. You're a lawbreaker. And sometimes you and I just need to hit pause, need to hit reset, and need to remind ourselves who God is and who we are. That's us. If you believe the Bible. And if you believe the Bible, Psalm 96, he's the judge. And when you put those two things together, you begin to understand why Luke 19.10 is really good news and why we've talked about it every week through the Gospel of Luke. That Jesus came to seek us and to save us. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Here's the third thing that you need to get, thinking about God being the judge. All of the nations are lost without a knowledge of the one true God. All lost. Some of you are thinkers, you're reflective, and you're putting all this together. 
And maybe you've thought about this before. Maybe you're thinking about it this morning for the very first time. But you're saying to yourself, okay, God is the judge. And he just went through that whole list of verses about who we are. And he's talking about all these peoples, all these nations. He put the, the map up there and drew all these funny lines. And he talked about the, the people out there at that city. And they had Coke and they had MTV, but they didn't know Jesus. And some of you are thinking, how is God going to hold these people accountable for something we've never heard? I mean, the series is called Finish the Mission, which implies it's not finished yet. All of the peoples don't know and aren't worshiping Jesus. And so you're mulling this over in your brain and you're thinking, are you, are you telling me that God's going to hold these people accountable for something that we haven't even gone to tell them? Seems like that's our fault, not their fault. And on that note, you're correct. It is our fault. On the other side of the coin, when you think about these people that don't know, that are lost, understand this. God's not going to hold them accountable for what we haven't told them. He is going to hold them accountable for sin. And he is going to hold them accountable for the revelation that they have received of him. They will be held accountable for that. They won't stand before the judge and say, did you hear the preacher and what he said about Jesus? And they'll say, no, I never heard. But they will be held accountable for their sin. And they will be held accountable for what they know about God. And you say, well, what do they know about God? Think about some of these verses. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, you can look in the heavens at the sun and the stars and the moon, the planets. And you can learn truth about God. And what you learn is that he exists and that he's the creator, and that he is supremely glorious. And Psalm 19 says the sun goes all the way around. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows. It comes up every day, day after day after day, and you see it. And it's just like a giant billboard saying there is a God, he exists, and he's glorious. No one does not get that message. Everyone gets it. What else do these people know? Ecclesiastes 3 says God has put eternity into the heart of human beings. Meaning, in Ecclesiastes, you read about life under the sun. That's life as if there were no God. In Ecclesiastes 3 says, look, everybody knows that this life is not all there is. Everybody has that intuitive knowledge that there is something else. Let me give you an interesting example of this. A few months back, I was reading a blog about a couple of atheist guys, and I said, you know what, I want to read their books. These were like the most popular guys, they do all the speaking gigs, they write all the books, Amazon bestseller list. I said, I just want to read what they have to say. So I got online to Amazon, bought some of these books by atheists, and they're still recommending books to me, I don't want, Amazon is. But I got these books, and I read these books, and these guys say, ah, there is no God, it's a joke, it's silly, it's ridiculous, and they have all kinds of arguments. Here's what I thought was interesting. Both of them think of themselves as very serious, scientific, philosophical thinkers. Both of them at the end of the day start to talk about aliens. You know why? Because they're not stupid. They know, well, everything can't come from nothing. That doesn't happen. So everything had to come from something we don't believe it's God, and at this point in time, their next best guess is aliens. 
and you laugh and you say, oh, those are probably not the real serious. No, they're the real serious atheists. The guys who are 100% dead set, certain, making fun of Christians, arguing against religion, that's what they come up with at the end of the day. Aliens did it. We came from aliens. Say, that's so silly. But they know. They know that there's eternity, that there's something else, that there's something outside of life under the sun of what we can see here. Everyone knows that. And then you look at Romans 1, 18 to 23. It just sort of slams the book shut on this idea that they don't know enough to be held accountable because Paul says we can look at the things that have been created and we can see that there is a God, that he's powerful, and that we ought to worship him. And you look it up. Paul says right there in Romans 1, all people do this naturally. We reject what is plain about God in front of us in creation. And we serve created things instead of the creator. And you can go some places in the world. We saw it on the video. You saw it on the pictures I put up some of these people. They serve statues and idols made to look like snakes or birds or cats, whatever. We can go to the United States. We're so sophisticated, we don't worship statues anymore. We just look in the mirror and worship ourselves, a created thing instead of the creator. And Romans 1 applies to both. Whether you have a little statue or whether your statue looks back at you in the mirror, all of us, apart from God's grace, reject what's plain about him and worship something else. And we'll be held accountable for that. And you take Psalm 19 and you add it to Ecclesiastes 3 and Romans 1 and you say all these nations, all of these people groups that don't know, that we haven't gone yet, they're going to be held accountable for what we haven't told them? No. They will be held accountable for their sin. They will be held accountable for what God has shown them in creation that they've rejected and that they've turned away from. You understand when you say all nations are lost without a knowledge of the true God. And you think about the fact that one day they're going to stand before the judge. And then you think about the amazing truth that you know what they need to know. We come in this room every week, week after week after week, and we talk about it, and we sing about it, and we pray about it, and we fill out blanks on an outline about it. We memorize verses from this book about it. What we sing about and pray about and talk about is what they desperately need to hear. They're lost. It's what those passages tell us. God's the judge, Psalm 96, and all of the peoples will stand before him as the judge. And the only hope that they have is that one of us, and by us I don't mean just in this room, but I mean Christians, an American Christian, a Chinese Christian, a German Christian, a Kenyan Christian, somebody who knows will go and will tell them the truth. Someone's got to go. And if someone's going to go, Someone's got to stay and work and give money so that they can go. And all of us are called to make a sacrifice. And over the next few weeks, as we talk about missions, I'm begging you to be prayerful about whether or not God wants you to go. 
selfishly, we look at our church and our friends and our family and say, we don't want you to go. We want you to stay. We love you. But maybe God wants you to go. Maybe he doesn't. You don't need to feel guilty if he's not placing some burden on your heart to go. But you do need to understand this. If you stay, you still are part of the mission. The mission is not just for missionaries. It's for believers. And some go and some stay. And those who stay work hard and make money so that we can send those that God wants to send. When we get all of this and you put all these pieces together, you get one step closer to finishing the mission. Whether you go or whether you stay. You understand that God is the creator of all of these peoples. And he made them for one purpose, to worship Jesus. And you look around the world and you say, it's not happening. And we have a mission to make disciples of all of these peoples, all of these nations. Who's going to go? Who's going to give? We want the mission to be complete. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that you would forgive us as your people for failing to be serious about the mission that you've given us. And yes, there are difficult places and difficult people. But the task that you've given us is very simple. And the truths that we see in Psalm 96 are very simple. It's very clear that you're the judge of all of the peoples, that you're calling them to worship you. And we look around the world and we see that that's not happening. And Father, we want what you want. When we don't want what you want, we pray that you would change our hearts, change our desires. Father, we want to be a church of people that you use to finish the mission, to make disciples in Odessa, across the street, around our, our country, and even to the ends of the world. Father, as we sing... And as we celebrate who you are and what you have done for us, help us to be mindful of the many, many people who are not doing that today. And help us to be mindful of the call that you have placed on our life, not just to come into this room and sing, but to be a part of bringing in men and women and boys and girls from every nation and every tribe and every family. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.